All right, it's Wednesday, the 3rd of May now, and I've been going through some Matthew North videos, one that I had downloaded ages ago from BitChute, and another one that I've just downloaded. And it makes me think that everything is a CIA operation, but I'm sure some things aren't. And as long as you as long as you're kind of cautious about the paranoia, I think you can probably get away with most of the big things are CIA operations and the small things aren't, because it would be a waste of time for the CIA to be involved in small things. It has to be large scale. Everything that they do has to be large scale. The drug operation has to be large scale. The war operation has to be large scale. The misinformation has to be large scale. And it looks like pretty much everything is coming from the military industrial complex going back to Vietnam. So Michael Aquino and Mind Wars explains a lot of what's going on now. You don't really need to go very much further than that. And my perspective is imagination creates reality. And with Michael Aquino, we're talking about uh, a military and intelligence-based psychological operations man who was also a Satanist who founded the Church of Set. So that makes him a combination of all of the things that are spoken about in the alternative media at the moment. And that's kind of what I'm looking for is where does it come from? And that's the place that it comes from pretty much, I think. He's the man that combines all of those things in one place. So he's got to be the source of it. Going back through Alistair Crowley and that that side of the magical operations that have been going on. There's another side to the magical operations as well, because we're talking about imagination creates reality. So on a small scale, it's it's everybody creating a version of their own reality, filtering out the things that they're not interested in and filtering in the things that they are. And it's a it's it's not exactly a creative process, it's more of a filtering and recognition process, a remembering process. But for me, it's it's definitely a work in progress. And I, I get more, a lot of my material from Neville Goddard and at the moment from Louise Hay and from Joseph Murphy. Lots of New Thought people, Ernest Holmes even. I don't do the, the biblical justification for it, but I'll, I'll use the techniques and I'll accept the belief system and the philosophical model that goes with it. And it is, to some extent, using your imagination that produces the results that, we, that I see in my life. And uh, I'm still working out how to do it to the point where I can actually make some money, but it's producing a good, positive response at the moment. So... I'm happy with that. That's enough. If When the money comes, 
it'll it'll just come in its own way. I'm not really worried about it too much. Oh, the other thing I was thinking about as well is uh, the idea for a, a monthly film night. I floated, what, about th three months ago at one of the Libertarian meetings. And I've been thinking about it, and if the Tyneside Cinema still has a suggestion box, then it would be e just as easy, or possibly easier, just to generate some double bills at the Tyneside Cinema and use those as a social focus for the Libertarians and for Truth Seekers and get everybody together in one place informally so that the networking happens around the movie or the movie's double bill. So I'm going to go up to the Tyneside this afternoon and find out if they've got a, a suggestion mechanism. They, they always used to have. I suggested many double bills when I was a student, but that's 40 years ago. But there must be a mechanism for su making suggestions at the Tyneside. It's a, it's a charity, so they have to be open to those sorts of things, I would imagine, as part of their charter. And I don't know... I don't know the details of how it operates, so I'm going to have to find out. But the Tyneside Cinema is one mechanism. Star and Shadow is another mechanism. I don't really have any connection to the Star and Shadow, though, and it's it's a bit further out of town. It's not easy walking distance. It's about 15 minutes walking distance from where I am. Whereas the Tyneside is, is five minutes up the road. It's easy. So I'm going to investigate both of those places and see what see what can happen. And uh, I may well spend some time just hanging out at the Star and Shadow to see what occurs up there. Hi, I'm Sean Stone. Prepare for the Mind War here on Buzzsaw. Central Intelligence Agency. It was described by witnesses as... For those of you who are not familiar with the name Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, he was the founder of the Temple of Set and spent many years in the U.S. Army as Lieutenant Colonel. He's the author of books such as Mind War, The Temple of Set, and The Church of Satan, and he'll be discussing his career and also philosophy here on the show. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Um, I just want to start out, I think, by clarifying and understanding the nature of what it is to be a Setian. Obviously, slightly, slightly different from a Satanist, um, but obviously you did spend some time with the Church of Satan under LeVay initially. And just really just to understand what, what is the mindset, what is the philosophy of, of a Setian? What is that worldview like? The Temple of Set uh, was originally um, thought to take the context of what our original satanic experience had been out of the Judeo-Christian mythology system. And harking back to the original Church of Satan days, we were looking really to find the uh, nature of what is generally called the human soul. In other words, what it is within us that animates us 
that uh, gives us freedom of decision, of conceptualization, the intellectual life force. The Church of Satan, of course, had a certain social criticism aspect to it, and it also uh, liked to hold Judeo-Christianity's feet to the fire. After 10 years, that uh, both, that both of those became sort of uh, played out, and we were looking, as Obi-Wan Kenobi suggested to Luke Skywalker in the first Star Wars movie, to take a first step into a larger universe. So the Temple of Set exists to uh, explore the self, the personality, and we do this through the media of ancient Egyptian religion, which we found to be the most sophisticated. So what you see in the Temple of Set is not um, anything with an agenda towards good or evil per se, but rather towards understanding consciousness, and once you understand consciousness, to maximize your personal use of it in such a way that uh, you are not the slave to conventions or, or to propaganda of any sort for that matter, so that you are in fact a, uh, in effect, a god yourself, responsible for your own decisions concerning matters of good or evil or morality. So, in the context of the, the prominence of mind, basically, there's the philosophy that all the universe is mental, right? It is, it, is, it is a mental reality that we live in. It's mind that really dictates the reality we create. Would you say that, for example, during rituals that are conducted, that there are actually any entities, spirits, daemons, as they're called, that are actually invoked, or are they simply manifestations of one's own mind? Well, as we understand the universes, there are actually two of them, what we call the objective universe, which would be the physical universe of matter, mass, and energy that we normally think of as our external natural environment. And then there is also each individual's subjective universe, which is the perception, the interpretation, um, and the expressions and impressions that you yourself both project into the objective universe and uh, take in from it. So we actually operate in both of these contexts. Uh, what we call lesser black magic would consist of operations within the objective universe using little known uh, or little understood uh, laws to influence events and behavior and perceptions. And what we call greater black magic is probably more what you're thinking of in terms of uh, ritual or ceremonial magic, which has to do with looking into yourself to explore and refine your own concept of yourself and your soul. Now, the question of are there demons or are there entities sort of like you'd see in a horror movie? Well, no, uh, not in the way that most people would think, but we view the consciousness uh, as a particularization of a universal principle, which is what we refer to as set, which is the source of all individual consciousnesses, a little bit like in the Platonic concept of forms or first principles. So what you're doing really in a ritual is activating your personal perceptions and your interpretations of these things to refine that image, to make it into something useful for you yourself. 
But again, in that, in your in your understanding, then you would say that there are no external entities that are conjured in these rituals that are external to you. Well, that's true in the case of a greater black magical ritual when it is essentially between you and the source of your consciousness being sent. If it is an operation of lesser black magic out in the uh, material universe, then we understand and interact with what we refer to as the Neturu, uh, the precise name in hieroglyphic for the Egyptian gods, which are the principles that govern the objective universe. Uh, they would be collectively referred to as natural law. So when we are attempting operations in the objective universe, then yes, you might say that we are invoking, if you'd like to use that term, various networks. I'm sorry, what was the last word you said? Various? The last, the last thing you said was various, uh, you're invoking various netru? Yes. Yeah. As applicable to a particular situation that we would like to influence. So there has been a long allegation that the, that the British Empire, essentially under John Dee, right, the, the first so-called you know, chief, chief sorcerer of the British Empire, um, 007, began invoking and, and doing deals with some of these you know, lesser entities, let's say, or net, I'm sorry, lesser black magic uh, relationships with Netsuru, for example. And under these deals, and they, basically the British Empire was allowed to have tremendous um, power over the material world. And then apparently America sort of inherited those relationships, many of which are predicated on blood sacrifices or some type of uh, ritual dealings that, that allow America to basically maintain the, the Anglo-American empire as it now stands. Does that um, make sense to you, or do you have any insight into that? No, John Dee was an astrologer and essentially the court magician for Queen Elizabeth I. And he was primarily an astrologer, but he also dabbled in what you'd call ceremonial magic, invoking angels, uh, his pet one being a nice young lady angel named Madini. And uh, from these, he wrote down what are generally referred to as the Enochian Keys or Enochian Calls, which are a series of angelic statements, uh, basically referring to different levels of the human consciousness, again. But none of this was particularly conspiratorial. Uh, the closest that he came to being a conspirator was that Queen Elizabeth did send him abroad to places like Poland and uh, uh, according to at least one of the historians who documented his life, Richard Deacon, he served indeed very much as a sort of clandestine special agent for Queen Elizabeth, uh, sending her coded messages in the form of astrological um, statements at that time. But this did not really change the course of direction of the British Empire that was purely materialistic, which D had nothing to do. Mm. But not simply D. I'm saying beyond that, has America in any sense inherited some of these uh, dealings with, with the Netero? I mean, it seems that the point, if you're going to be practicing ritual magic and it exists, then people in power would also be performing the same rituals for purposes of maintaining that power, right? The so-called Illuminati um, have been practicing this apparently for thousands of years. Uh, my question is, you know, why would, what we're seeing today in terms of America's projection of power across the world, do you see that in any way as a reflection of 
uh, dealings that were taking place or done in a magical ritual setting? Um, once again, uh, no. The United States was really the result of um, the thought of John Locke as expressed through persons like Thomas Jefferson, uh, which was a very materialistic period in history. And we were the one of the first countries to try to implement a social contract version of very uh, materialistic decision-making, so that despite the strange notion that the United States um, uh, has mottos such as uh, uh, under God and so on. It was actually a very atheistic country when it was created and uh, has remained so ever since because its decision-making is all argumentative and really uh, not subject to any kind of supernatural influence. The closest, I suppose, that conspiracy theorists might come to that in actual history would be the fact that many of the founding fathers were Masons. But this was not something I think that really influenced policy making or policy decisions. We've actually been a very pragmatic nation that way. Um, we make decisions on uh, things like money and power, I suppose, and influence, but really not to, to curry the favor of any supernatural influence. So you don't see any supernatural influence at play it's in, in the projection of American power? No, I don't. I, I, would, I would interpret it more as a function of um, economics, politics, in a very materialistic sense. I mean, this is a, an imperial atmosphere that we live in today in which the warp and woof of it is who controls assets, money, um, and resources, that sort of thing. But if you yourself, someone like yourself, um, could, for example, do a lesser working in magic and, and commune with, with the so-called Neteru or some kind of entities, um, why can't those in higher positions of power do the same thing? Well, they could if they were interested and knew what they were doing. And in fact, in an amusing sort of way, Mind War, the book that I've recently uh, authored, is a sort of a Boy Scout handbook telling them how to do exactly that. Mm. But it does so from the standpoint of saying that human decision-making is out of control in a very negative way, and this book and the procedures in it are a manual to bring it back into control in a very positive way so that we don't just run around the world killing people and blowing up stuff. Right. And so what is the procedure for Mind War that you think would be more positive? Because oftentimes, you know, we know that the MKA-Ultra programs have existed. We know that various forms of brainwashing and mind control have been looked into, certainly by the CIA and whatnot. Army, Army intelligence, for example, I'm sure knows a lot of techniques for that purpose. So how do, how do you distinguish between Mind War as a positive as opposed to, you know, an attempt to brainwash and, and manipulate people? Well, first, I've been involved in intelligence and psychological operations for about 40 years uh, in all levels of it and across the intelligence community. So I've seen and uh, studied you know, what's been done, and quite frankly, most of it has been useless and pointless and uh, counterproductive and destructive. So the reason that I researched and wrote Mind War was to take things away from that haphazardness and bring some sanity to it. Uh, 
What happens normally in the process of resolving international conflict is that you have arguments that take place, uh, which are, they can be casual and they can be diplomatic, but people argue a problem with each other. And then if that argument fails and no compromise or solution is reached, then they uh, stop arguing, they stop discussing, pick up guns, bombs, and weapons, and start shooting each other. A pretty good historical example of this would be the American Civil War, where there was a lot of argument uh, and a lot of attempted compromise before 1860. And then when this all failed and fell apart, uh, people stopped trying to argue or intellectually come up with a solution, picked up guns, and started slaughtering one another for five years which at the end of it really didn't accomplish a whole lot uh, except to kill an enormous amount of people and come up with a very unstable sort of uh, peace after that, including a freeing of the slaves that we're still having trouble actualizing today. So when I started researching uh, Mind War, what I wanted to look at is exactly how does human thought function? And this in the book is under the heading of the architecture of thought. And most people know almost nothing about this. You will not have heard this really from anyone else because it's something that we've gone into in extreme depth in PSYOP research. Now, the part of your mind that makes, uh, uh, that draws logical conclusions and that reasons and that discusses things with other people uh, is the algorithmic part, and it is conscious thinking, and it takes place in about 5% of your thought process. The other 95% takes place in your subconscious and is referred to academically as pattern thinking. These are these large overlays of reality and perceived truth that you refer to without thinking about them that tell you whether your thoughts are valid or not. And a lot of the ways that these patterns come into existence are uh, mechanical through your senses and your sensory perceptions that you're not aware of. For example, um, we're all familiar with the various um, brain frequencies, the alpha, the beta, the delta, and the theta. Well, alpha puts you in a pleasant mood, theta puts you in a creative mood, um, beta puts you in a somewhat uh, nervous and uh, confrontational mood. So if you would like a room full of people to be in a fairly good mood and cooperative towards resolving a problem, uh, first you sweep the room to make sure there's no beta in it, and then secondly, you blanket it with alpha. That's just one example. Color perception. Most people think of colors as something that you choose, well, I like this color or I like that color. Actually, uh, at the subconscious level, colors have a very strong impact on the human constitution that most people aren't aware of. The color red uh, makes us nervous, brittle, antagonistic. The color blue makes us thoughtful and creative. The color green makes us somewhat uh, passive. This, again, is at the sort of eye chemistry level. We're not talking about preferences here or uh, situations where you might have a particular passion for this or that color. 
So by constructing these, uh, by presenting certain colors along with certain brain waves and so on, and uh, several other different situations here, you can actually construct, um, excuse me for just a minute here. Oh, sorry about that. No problem. Um, so based on the color, the color, the color patterning, you can you can yes. create a can certain actually, mood, a certain response. Create, yes, you can create a more cooperative atmosphere, which is what you're trying to do. So the entire thrust of the Mind War book and all of what I call the psychons or psychological control systems in it are basically to explain the influences from the objective universe, from the physical universe that come into your body all the time and influence your perception of reality at the subconscious level. And to take all of these essentially and push them in the direction of intelligence and positive thinking and cooperation. This sounds almost like science fiction, but it's actually um, quite scientific and uh, quite handleable by uh, various devices that you can use. So what you were referring to a few minutes ago as uh, some of the ways in which um, say the CIA, for example, blundered around with MKUltra, were completely misguided in this sense because they were trying to use things like chemistry, sensory deprivation, and stress to, um, to bludgeon people into some sort of passive cooperation at that 5% of argumentative level. And all it accomplished, all those programs ever did, was to scramble people's thinking and to frighten them and that gets you nowhere in terms of problem solving and it actually gets you nowhere in terms of intelligence acquisition because then you're just dealing with people who are frightened or or hurt or psychotic in some way so those basically were a huge waste of time and I wrote a paper some years back uh, about one of them uh, that followed up MKUltra called Project Stargate in which I subtitled it $20 million up in smoke and mirrors, which is what it amounted to. So what Mind War is all about is not touching that 5% of, of uh, argumentative or algorithmic thinking at all. All it's intended to do is to put the most positive atmosphere towards the 95% of our pattern thinking that gives us a disposition as to how we wish to interact with other people and to cooperate with them. Because if you can get that kind of a cooperative and positive problem-solving atmosphere, then the 5% is peanuts. It's chicken feed. It'll work itself out. Mm. Mindware also uh, operates on the notion that, yes, you can conduct war, because war is what happens when diplomacy breaks down. But mind war does not uh, envision war as people against people. Mind war takes both sides of people and joins them together against the other side, which is the mutual problem. So mind war is actually war by all the people involved against the common problem, 
which is what you might call the enemy. So it's a sort of a new way of looking at war, and but it's a way in which nobody gets hurt. But who is the enemy? I mean, for example, in, in, from the position of, of those in power, the enemy is their own people. I mean, the, for example, right, the, the idea of divide and conquer, you have to ma ma maintain your own positions of power. So how, where is the agreed upon enemy? That's the hard thing to reconcile, is the fact that peace is not necessarily profitable for the military industrial side of things. There is peacetime industry, but right now we have a very entrenched military industrial complex, which you saw you know, through your career, which doesn't have really an interest in peace. They prefer the war on terror being endless, you know, trillions of dollars spent um, for, you know, against a small, perhaps a small terrorist threat, right? In reality, probably maybe a few thousand people. And yet how many trillions of dollars have been spent, how much destruction is, is, is created in the wake of it, just goes to show that the, the real interest from the point of view of power is, is war. Well, I agree with you to the uh, standpoint that there is an enormous amount of destructive motivation right now. That, again, is one of the things that prompted me to do this study and to write this uh, proposal up as a book. And indeed, right now, this book is circulating throughout the um, major areas of the U.S. government, in addition to being commercially available. But the book begins by acknowledging that, yes, the world is in a very unstable and very uh, catastrophic situation right now. That's one of the things that makes this important, because if you look at the situation right now internationally, it's simply not sustainable. There is too much damage, there is too much destruction, there is too much uh, horror really going on around the planet, and this can't go on uh, without everything breaking down. So one way or the other, we have to address it in a positive way. Even within the, what you might call the military-industrial complex, the scrabble for resources and the scrabble for profits is becoming more and more of a, an end game, you might say, because we are running out of resources. We are uh, running out of ways to control how the world uh, uses and um, uh, can be sold these resources. So things simply can't go on the way they've been going. It's too dangerous. Um, we have uh, an upsurge, even within the military, of a problem of suicides. Uh, and you have a, a political system today that generally throws its hands up and doesn't know what to do because people get polarized. Look at what we have right now between the presidency and the Congress, with neither side being able to do anything anymore because they're simply at poles apart and nobody's interested in cooperating. Mm. So we've got to get people uh, liking one another and working together. And what MindWar is suggesting is that a great deal of the factors which influence people to be this way are at the mechanical level, at the subconscious level, and can be controlled through technology, which is what the book is talking about. The danger of this, of course, is that these same technological controls could be used uh, to control people in a negative way, to make them more antagonistic, uh, which would lead you to an atmosphere something like Orwell's 1984. So I am taking a big leap of faith here that, as Plato contemplated, the underlying impulse of humanity is to the good and not to the bad. And all through this book, I am pushing that and pushing the morality 
that we have to look to the common good uh, when we are bringing these functions into focus and using these techniques. That is why this becomes an important thing. And incidentally, as, as I, I say in there too, as far as, as, far as the uh, machinery of profit is concerned, take as an example what we're doing right now with nuclear weapons. There's a big industry to build nuclear weapons, but not to use them because they're too dangerous and they're too deadly. So the profits are being made, the bombs are stacking up, the missiles are sitting there in the silos, but nobody is being killed by these things. Now that isn't a very good state of affairs, but it's better than people actually being killed by these. What I'm suggesting is that the levels of conventional weaponry, including things like drones and so on, have reached a similar danger point, and that therefore if the industry wishes to keep on building these things, go ahead, build them, put them in parades, put them on show, use them to rattle sabers with, but do not use them to kill other people with. You don't need to do that to solve these problems internationally. Mindwar will do that for you. Just keep these things around like you do the guided missiles for show until you've matured enough so that you don't feel you have to build them anymore. And instead of building those, you can go out and build some solar panels or windmills. Well, it seems that your Mind War book comes from many years of research and ex direct experience, right, with the human mind. Yes. Having seen firsthand, for example, um, when we weren't you involved with the so-called Jedi, the Jedi Knights concept in the '80s, when there when there was a, a notion of trying to create more. Um, I don't even know what you say, more, more whole, holistic soldiers in a sense, right? Who, could, who have a psychic ability as well as uh, physical abilities, right? The whole super soldier concept. Hmm. Yes, one of my good friends, uh, Colonel John Alexander, who was uh, involved in what was then called Project Jedi, which was uh, the subject of a recent movie called The Men Who Stare at Goats, was of course involved in that process, but I would say that compared to what's in the Mind War book and in the Mind War program, uh, again, it was operating pretty ignorantly. It uh, really didn't go into the architecture of how a human subconsciousness is constructed or all the natural forces and systems that go into constructing it. It was a sort of touchy-feely sort of thing. I would put it on the scale of maybe one out of ten where the sophistication of Mind War is concerned. Mm. But it also feels that it seems that the most effective mind war actually occurs on the human child, right? Before the age of seven, for example. That's when we say that, they, we, that we reach the age of reason at the age of seven. So wouldn't it seem that the most effective way of, for example, influencing humanity is to affect the children? I don't think so. At least my research never took me in any, of, uh, any direction like that because the patterns that we're talking about here, these subconscious patterns, are all the ones that are developed by the time that you're a functioning adult. Usually when you're a child you're, I would say, pretty much an emotional bundle and you don't really have what I'd call fully developed subconscious patterns in this way. And of course your reasoning and your argumentative thinking is what education is designed to give you throughout your schooling process and your socialization process. Mm. But what we're talking about in Mind War are the fully developed subconscious pattern thinking sets that adults have when they are exactly in a position to do good or bad 
influences to one another. And again, um, the argumentative part of this, what we call algorithmic thinking, which is the 5% of thinking that's not the pattern thinking, that takes, plus, that takes place at the conscious level, and that again is an adult function. So mind war is completely and wholly oriented towards dealing with these things at the functional adult level, which of course is also where uh, international problems and situations occur and the damage decisions are taking place. Children are just the victims of this system and really are not involved in it. Yeah, well, were you ever familiar with the Monarch project or so-called Monarch sub-project of MKUltra? Well, the Monarch uh, program, as far as I'm concerned, is nothing more than an urban myth. The, the MKUltra program was very real, and that was a program by the Central Intelligence Agency that was actually a carryover from some uh, previous ones that they were uh, experimenting with. And there were actually some carryover programs from MKUltra that went over to the Defense Department. But none of those, in my experience or any of my research, had anything to do with trying to do something to or with children. Right. The you never, you never saw Project Monarch, I think, is a complete fiction. So you never saw any, any of the uh, PSYOP programs or um, whether CIA, Defense Department, that were investigating or, or experimenting with, with children? That is absolutely correct. And I know that if anything like that had happened in the Defense Department, that I or any other officer of uh, what I would call proper integrity would um, hear about or know about, uh, we would object to it immediately and formally and very aggressively. Um, and I think I rather think that from the people that I've known in the intelligence community, and, and this this is sort of difficult to say in this era that we've just been through where you've seen the CIA involved in torture programs and so on, but all of the all of the people that I was involved with in the intelligence community generally had a very serious approach towards their own ethical responsibilities. And while they were not adverse to playing uh, tag with the Russians um, now and then, uh, they were not evil or destructive or sadistic people. But my question is, from a Setian point of view, if, if, if the idea of, a set of you know, the ultimate goal being to be, realize one's own godhood, right, is, aren't you beyond good and evil at that point, or is there still a, a moral standard or code, you see? Well, you, the, the more that you become responsible for yourself, then the more you assert the responsibility to go beyond dictated conventions of good and evil. In other words, um, your community, your family, the society around you, perhaps your uh, religion, if it's a conventional religion, all give you laws of behavior and guidelines of behavior and said, if you do this, it's good. If you do this, it's bad. Well. We find as we go through life that a lot of these laws uh, are imperfect and they are approximations and that um, there's a difference between doing the moral good and perceiving it and doing the legal good as it were at any point in time. So the challenge is as you become more and more sophisticated you have to take more responsibility for seeking the true good, what Plato referred to as the agathon, the 
the pinnacle of abstract good in any particular situation, which you can't simply excuse by saying, well, this is legal and this is illegal. So as we move more into the direction of self-deification, you also assume that same responsibility of a god, if you use that term, to uh, recognize the goods and the evils in a particular situation and also, of course, to choose the good. Adam, you mentioned MKUltra earlier, and one of the, the interesting aspects of that I'm not sure if you heard about this, was a so-called Collins elite um, who supposedly had come together because they had, they had seen during the MKUltra experiments uh, that some supernatural activity would sometimes occur because of the nature of the mind and how the MKUltra you know, experiments basically were activating people's minds. Uh, sometimes, for example, it was creating, I guess what you called portals or some kind of interdimensional uh, appearances of you know, UFOs or sightings like this. And they started investigating and trying to see, for example, could there be a relationship between our mental phenomena and uh, the you know and and then the sightings of UFOs in the modern era, right? Post forty-seven in particular. Um, did you ever? How would how would you say? Have you heard about this group or this aspect of MKUltra? No, and and quite frankly, again, from um, I've, I've made quite a. Uh, a study of MKUltra and the other government experiments there in preparation for my research towards the mind war concept. And again, mind war was a mess from start to finish. It was an attempt to drug or to stress out the conscious parts of the human mind to sort of try, try to create a Manchurian candidate kind of a uh, mind slave or dupe like that. And all this was a total failure, and they should have known it from the beginning if they had looked into thought architecture to understand, as I said, how the human brain actually functions, which, to, for their pains, they simply did not. And the notion that you could use, say, a psychedelic uh, drug of some sort, like LSD, to go through some sort of portal and see gods, well, Yes, I mean, you can create hallucinations. There was a pretty good example of this in the book and the movie Altered States, in which uh, the combined use of sensory deprivation tank and Mexican mushrooms. But that's not what I mean. I mean, think about Aleister Crowley, for example. I mean, Crowley saw, what was it, Lamb, who looked kind of like a gray alien when he was doing rituals. Well, I don't remember uh, Lamb per se. Uh, Crowley's holy guardian angel was Iwas, but that was his higher self-visualization. And Crowley himself, of course, was a mixture of uh, some very interesting concepts in what we would call greater black magic, but he also uh, indulged himself very actively in the use of drugs. So much of the results that you get from reading Crowley's biographies, all of which I have read in his autobiography, The Confessions, and his own magical records, which I've studied in their original forms and manuscripts, um, are not of much use because basically, again, you're dealing with scrambled thought processes here. Mind war does not involve any kind of scrambling of the human thought processes at all. It can't. It needs to keep everything under control and it needs to keep the conscious mind completely conscious so that when you have 
a personality that is maximized for its intelligence and its creativity and its cooperativeness that you can bring that active decision-making function of the brain to bear on the problem. Mm. Don't do that by scrambling people's brains or by hallucinating them. Right. I'm simply trying to understand your, 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 your belief about the multidimensional nature of this reality. I mean, I know, for example, Colonel John Alexander dismisses the idea of UFOs. Do you also dismiss UFOs as, um, as, as not a, I don't know, as a hoax or as a, fan, as a drug-induced hallucination? Or do you think that there are actually these ships manifesting into our reality because, again, we are in some kind of multidimensional universe? Well, I think that the objective universe, as we refer to it, the external material one, is not multidimensional as people understand it. It's, it's one universe. It's there of matter, mass, and energy. Um, it does have some strange aspects to it, such as zero-point energy and, of course, a, a certain amount of antimatter in it, which is sort of an inverted kind of mm. presence in this universe. But these sort of fantasy or science fiction notions that you sometimes come up with as multi-dimensional universes where you can step from one to the other a little bit like an H.P. Lovecraft story. No, I think that's um, great fun for science fiction and fantasy writers, but it's not the reality. What you do have within your own subjective consciousness is the ability to construct, if you like, as many universes as you wish under your own personal control. And this, at its lightest weight, you might say, would be something like daydreaming or just normal dreaming. But you can do this consciously and you can do it through uh, control of your senses, such as uh, John Lilly did with separate sensory deprivation tank experiments and so on. Where, where UFOs are concerned, um, uh, Colonel Alexander actually does believe in the real existence of UFOs. He's written a very good book on the subject. He, as I said, um, was uh, involved in a number of what you might call the stranger projects within the Defense Department, but uh, and that gave him access to a number of people in the intelligence community. And when he decided to write this book, he basically made the routes, made the rounds, spoke to various generals and various high-level uh, people within the intelligence agencies and said, okay, how about this? And he got very straight answers from them at an unclassified level, bearing in mind that he did not have what you call in the business a need to know concerning classified information uh, that has to do with space intelligence. So he wrote his book based on the most straightforward answers that he could get at an unclassified level from the people at the top levels of these agencies, which is why it's a very good book. And he's a very hard-nosed person. You're not talking about a kook here. You're talking about somebody who uh, makes very sound decisions on very good data. So I recommend his book without hesitation. Now, one of the differences between us here is that I do happen to have a big background in space intelligence. I was one of the Army's very first space intelligence officers when they created that uh, specialty in 1990. I went through the Army Space Institute uh, and became uh, an Army space intelligence officer and through the joint space intelligence program of the U.S. Air Force at that time. And from 1990 to 1994, I was assigned as a 
intelligence officer with headquarters U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs, uh, working at also at such places as Cheyenne Mountain with the NORAD headquarters there and uh, even some fun places like Area 51. <laughs> so I have a, a, a slightly different perspective on this from the standpoint of what I was exposed to and what I know. Uh, unfortunately, at the compartmented above top secret levels at which I was cleared, uh, much of this is also stuff that I can't talk about unless I wish to disappear. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I can tell you, I can tell you a few things that will help this a bit. Uh, at NORAD, at uh, Cheyenne Mountain, um, basically we use satellite and other means to scan the entire sky because the entire mission of NORAD to begin with, that's the North American Air Defense Command, which is a joint U.S. and Canadian command, was originally constructed to keep an eye out for any incoming Soviet ICBMs. Mm. But over the years, it generally became uh, an expanded mission to keep an eye out for anything up there. And let me tell you that there, if you want to know, are there UFOs, I would say there's an enormous amount of them. But a lot of this stuff is things like space junk from past launches and incoming meteors and other stuff that's just sort of out there in space and that comes near the Earth's atmosphere and either burns up in it or sort of bounces off it. So there, there is an enormous amount of UFO activity there that we see from Space Command that we don't identify. And a lot of it is traveling very fast and very irregularly. And so, yes, if you were to look at it in that sense, there is an enormous amount of unidentified flying object activity out there in space. But I think that what you're sort of zeroing in on is, are there flying saucers that come down and uh, suck up Farmer Jones's cow or uh, bring his wife up to the spaceship for medical experiments? And there I would have to say, um, no, we haven't seen that kind of thing in a way that um, you can actually document it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I think there have been a lot of sightings of more controlled UFO craft by Air, you know, Air Force pilots or professional pilots. Um, you know, they had recently the citizens hearing on disclosure in D.C. with about 40 witnesses uh, testifying before former Congress people. So, it's not. I'm not saying you know. It's not between space debris and you know getting abducted, but there do seem to be you know very uh, cogent people having sightings of some kind of manned controlled craft. Yes. Well, here you were getting kind of towards the Area 51 side of things, and I have to sort of be a little careful what I say here. But let me just say that there is there continues to be um, a great deal of activity in what's called black programs. Yeah. And these are experimental aircraft that are entirely um, human-originated. As to where some of their technology comes from, I really can't go into. Mm -hmm. But Reverse uh, engineering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I, don't quote me on that, but you can use your... You know, you can use your own speculation on that. Well, certainly a lot of it seems to have come from Nazi Germany. <laughs> well, yes. Um, Originally, some of it did, and this, that's a minor and rather funny story in itself, because the 
uh, Luftwaffe, the original, the Air Force in the Nazi period, um, was of course trying to research various ways to build longer range bombers and aircraft that they could do things like get to New York with. Uh, good for us, you know, they never quite um, made that before the end of the war, but they were working on different kinds of propulsion systems uh, that would give them a longer range and not use so much fuel. And that's where the uh, business of some of their circular aircraft uh, concept studies came into existence. Because they were looking for ways not to, not to reverse or eliminate the force of gravity. But if you remember from World War I, the Germans were very much into things like uh, zeppelins, where uh, you could go a long way with a little gasoline because you had a lighter-than-air aircraft. So by the time we got into the um, Nazi period and the World War II period, they were looking at ways to uh, compensate for gravity, uh, uh, things like uh, very high-speed counter-rotational devices, a little bit like a gyroscope. If you ever take a child's gyroscope and you uh, speed it up and then you hold it in your hand, you'll find that uh, it has very strange effects upon its weight and upon your own ability to move your hand relative to gravity, to the force of it. So when you look at those German, what you call flying saucer experiments, that's the direction in which they were going. And lucky for us, as I said, they didn't go any further <laughs> before Victory in Europe Day came along. You know, but after the war was over, that technology through paperclip basically went to Canada, who got it all wrong and fooled around with something called the Avrocar, which was another joke. And then after Canada washed its hands of it, it came down to the United States uh, in a highly classified project here called Silverbug, which uh, we then uh, tried to move this up towards uh, the jet engine applications of it instead of the counter-rotational ones, which didn't get us very far either, but before it got any further than that, it went deep black. So what you may be seeing today uh, are some developments that extended from those um, gravitational uh, propulsion and counter-rotational system development projects, which indeed would require circular aircraft. Right. I was going to ask you, speaking of Nazi Germany, um, I heard that you, during, uh, during your time in the military, I think, conducted a temple of set ritual at the Wevelsberg Castle, where Himmler's SS used to uh, have their meetings, right? It was sort of their, their secret, their, their headquarters, right? Their secret castle. Is that correct? You conducted a ritual there? Yes, that would have been in 1982. It's generally referred to as the Wevelsberg working. The Wevelsberg is an old uh, castle in uh, uh, near the town of Wevelsberg, which is somewhat close to uh, Paderborn in Westphalia in Germany. And in this case, uh, Heinrich Himmler, who is um, very much a mystic in the terms of harking back to pre-Christian uh, German romanticism and the old gods, so to speak. He was also very much a, uh, a devotee of the Grail myth, uh, as, for example, brought out, uh, illustrated in Wagner's Parsifal opera, which, of course, is a Christianized form of the Grail legend. So Himmler was... Uh, not only interested through his SS research people in tracking down the origins of the Grail legend, but also he wished to 
create an actual grail castle, a setting very much like the myth mythological castle in Parseval. And after looking around Germany, he settled upon the Wevelsberg as uh, his grail castle. So the chambers that he constructed within that castle were actually taken from and inspired by some of the sets in Wagner's Parseval, constructed by Alfred Roller. Most people don't understand that. They tend to have a sort of a very crude concept of the Wevelsberg as sort of a black magic castle or a just a, a castle where the SS gathered to uh, think up um, new ways to create harm to the world. That wasn't it at all. In fact, most of the SS never came near the Wevelsberg. It was a pet project of Heinrich Himmler's and it was oriented towards the Grail. It would have been very fascinating to see how that all transpired if, in fact, the SS and Himmler had survived the war and he'd been allowed to continue with it. But uh, then I think you would have seen something uh, dramatically different, a little bit, as I said, more towards the exploration of the human soul from a meditative standpoint than the sort of uh, comic book characters that you normally see of it. When I conducted the Wavelsberg working that you were asking about... Yes, I mean, I just want to know kind of what, uh, what yes. came of it, or what, you, what was the, the intention, and what did you experience in the process? Well, the purpose of the working itself, which took place in what's called the Valhalla, or the crypt of the Wevelsberg, which is its uh, lowest chamber in the North Tower there, um, which is a wonderful magical environment for greater black magical workings, because it's entirely designed to reflect uh, not only sound waves and mind waves in on the practitioner who stands in the center, but to amplify these things. So it was a working, again, to understand and decipher the actual nature of the castle, which had been, um, until that point, a complete mystery, and talked about, again, in popular literature as uh, just simply a nasty place. So what I learned and realized through that working was the actual nature of it, which was uh, as a manifestation and as a, an attempt to bring the metaphysical concept of the Grail Castle of legend into a physical form in the material universe so that it could be used as a ritual chamber to enable individuals to engage in that grail quest within themselves, which is an entirely different and I thought much more fascinating concept than what had previously been realized of this. I've worked with several of the people at the Wevelsberg Museum and some curators and historians from Germany who've studied the castle and we've gone further into this aspect, this concept of it, as opposed to, as I said, what uh, most people consider to be a sort of a black comic book concept of it. So ultimately it feels like the, the ritual aspect of what you know you espouse, which is the control of the, of the, not control, but sort of tapping in and recognizing our unconscious mind. That seems to be the essence of the mind war, really, is that people in general are, are malleable. They're, they're open to influence. And so either they need to use, uh, how do you say, either they need to recognize the power of their unconscious brain and start to um, go deeper in terms of uh, Actualizing, realizing their, their potential themselves, their, their negative and positive sides both, right? Bringing them into reconciliation. And if they don't do it, 
we basically you and people like uh, you know like in, in yourselves in positions of power are able to through the mind war doctrine influence that unconscious brain of the masses well yes now remember that the mind war book and the program of techniques in it takes place at the the objective universe level. In other words, these are the material forces in the universe outside of us. Your body is basically an electromagnetic chemical machine uh, subject to the electromagnetic spectrum. So this is a sort of a breakdown manual of how that machine functions and how you influence it at that level. We're talking about, as I said, the human body as a machine. Now within that machine you have a mind which bridges the physical and the metaphysical. This is the, the old mind-body question as to whether or not uh, your brain is merely a sort of a supercomputer that's a function of sensory input and expression, which is what the behaviorists and the materialists and the atheists would say, that basically you're just a machine and you react to stimulus and response. Or if you're a metaphysician, as a Setian is, and as a magician is, then the mind is something much higher and uh, uh, much more elegant, you might say, which uses the brain as a vehicle. So in the case of something like the Mind War book, we're not really talking about the metaphysical side of it. We're talking about the mechanical side of it. The Mind War book does get into morality to, in, in a very reasonable sense, in a sort of a... Uh, a very objective, very logical, very goal set, saying, look, you know, we can either treat one another badly and bust up the world, or we can treat one another compassionately and well and create a better world. And indeed, the uh, part of the mind war doctrine or procedure that's used for that is a conceptual revision of one of the Army's branches, currently civil affairs, which is uh, redesigned as parapolitics, mm. which is a concept developed by one of my uh, old professors and friends, Raghavan Iyer, who incidentally was a theosophist. Mm. I studied under him at the University of California in my graduate work there. And he was looking at the time that he wrote his magnum opus, Parapolitics, to come up with a way of analyzing human political systems to get rid of the junk and to come up with a, an enlightened, not simply a rational, but an enlightened way of making decisions concerning very real political issues. So the Mind War book takes uh, Dr. Iyer's parapolitics and institutionalizes it in an extensive redesign of the civil affairs branch, which is what the United States supposedly uses when it goes in to do nation building or reconstruction of things. Right. Well, it's a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. We're, I think we're at the end of this conversation, but I think at some point in the future, it'll be great to have you on and we can certainly discuss further because uh, there's so many different topics to cover with you. We just don't have the time for now. But uh, I appreciate you coming on and joining us. It was my great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks, a fascinating venture into the question of the war for our minds. And ultimately, the question is, who will become master of it? Will you master your own mind? This is Sean Stone signing off.